Well, good afternoon. A minute or two late from Bill Allen in downtown Tyler, Texas. Uh, we are doing a Bible study on Tuesdays and Thursdays on Facebook, looking at the Daily Bible, edited by Eflagard Smith, wonderful daily Bible reading tool. And uh, we are in the New Testament, and as we saw on Tuesday, boy, that starts quick. And speaking of starting quick, I have to give a special shout out to a young man by the name of Isaac William Atkinson. Happy birthday, Isaac. He's 12 years old today, and I hope you are having a splendid day. Gammy and Papa just love you more than anything. Um, I'm so proud of you and your family. We are looking today at a great, great passage of scripture, Matthew 5 through 7. It is the Sermon on the Mount, and it is one of the greatest things ever written. Um, Matthew records it in such a way that it is absolutely incredible. And these words of Jesus come across still as challenging today in uh, the year 2022 as they were 2,000 years ago almost when Jesus first was sharing them with all who would listen. It is, um, it is an incredible passage, and it is very tempting for me to say, okay, instead of uh, me sharing any comments, we're just going to read Matthew 5 through 7. And I have actually done that before in messages about the Sermon on the Mount. But today, since you have read it in your daily Bible reading, and since we are wanting to uh, do a little bit of commentary as well. Uh, I'm going to just share a little bit about that and maybe, yes, read some, uh, but also uh, share a few things about it. First of all, some introductory things. If you're familiar with this teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7, you know it's very similar to what um, uh, uh, Luke records in Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, uh, Luke records Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. <laughs> and so that immediately causes us to wonder, well, let's see, are we on a mountain, on a hillside, or are we in a flat place, in a plain area? Well, the answer is yes, uh, absolutely. It could be a little bit of both because remember Jesus taught and lived and preached uh, for all this time, three years at and during his ministry. And so we, it's understandable that during that three-year period of traveling from place to place throughout uh, Palestine in the regions of Judea, Judah and uh, Samaria and um, Galilee throughout all of those areas, uh, Jesus taught some of the same things at different times. And so it's not uh, unreasonable to, uh, to think that uh, sometimes he preached some of the same things. And I think that is a great explanation for some of the differences that you have in what we read in Matthew 5 through 7 and in Luke 6. They're very similar, but Matthew, of course, says a lot more. And uh, Luke records some things that Jesus says that Matthew records in the Sermon on the Mount uh, at other places in his gospel as well. So that's one of the differences. And, um, and, and then we see that, uh, you know, Luke records it being on a plane, uh, P-L-A-I-N, not A-N-E, of course. Uh, not very many planes around in Jesus' day. But there were uh, a lot of things that Jesus said in different places at different times. And throughout his ministry, he continued 
uh, to preach all of these things. There are some other interesting things that come up, and one of them is uh, right out of the box, as we read in Matthew chapter 5 during this time when he shares what we call the Beatitudes. Uh, in Matthew 5, it's a little different than in Luke 6. In Luke 6, uh, Luke records much of the same thing, but he also shares woes. Jesus pronounces, blessed are those, but uh, he also says, and woe to you. Uh, and so there are some differences there. Another difference is uh, Luke, of course, is more interested in the here and now and very practical. And so when Matthew says poor in spirit, talking about our attitudes and our hearts, Luke just says poor. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger. Uh, rather than who hunger and thirst for righteousness, as it is in Matthew. Uh, there's no contradiction there. Jesus very likely said all of those things at different times and in different places, much more, of course, than we would have recorded. John acknowledges this at the end of the Gospel of John. He says, there are a lot of other things that Jesus said and did. Uh, I'm sure that if we recorded everything that Jesus said and all the good things that he did, all the books and all the libraries and all the world wouldn't be able to hold it all, and I think that is right. Um, so let's get started and read through this. Uh, we'll read through some of the passages, and then we will um, comment on some of them as well. Um, beginning with the Beatitudes, and I want to stay with Matthew 5 through 7 as we look at this Sermon on the Mount from our reading in the Daily Bible. Uh, that also shares some of the things that Luke records, including the woes that he uh, records Jesus saying. But as we, as I read these Beatitudes, um, a couple of things. Number one, I think it's a great thing for you to memorize if you want to, if you want to study and memorize some scripture. These would be a great, a great place to go to. Um, but also notice that it's a whole different understanding. When Jesus came, he turned the world and its values upside down, including the Jews. And when they hear these things, they're just as perplexed as we are because of, uh, it almost sounds like for most of them that if you are experiencing that, it would be the opposite of being blessed, of being happy, uh, and yet... Jesus says um, that happiness, that joy, uh, that inner blessing that you feel comes from far within and not from the external circumstances. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I use that line a lot when I pray during funerals. Remember the promise of your son and bless and comfort those who mourn today. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I don't think that means in a physical way, but I think that means that they will uh, be blessed, uh, and that blessing will uh, amount to an eternal blessing. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Again, Luke records those who hunger now, uh, and he's speaking of it in a physical way. And Jesus many times will warn us about uh, being having all of our blessings now and not receiving it later. And I think it's an indication that Satan can use those things against us. It doesn't have to be true, but it certainly can be true, and we need to be watchful for that. But for Matthew, 
as he records, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And in a sense, it's very similar to what Luke says, because we are to be, even though we might be hungry physically now, we can still be hungering and thirsting for righteousness and experience that filling. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown uh, mercy. Later on, we're going to read about him talking about forgiving others and that being one of the standards that God uses in how he decides to forgive us. Here we receive mercy because we have shown mercy. Uh, many passages in scripture affirm that. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God, not peacekeepers but peacemakers, those who are willing, even if it calls on confrontation. That's not really keeping the peace, but that is making peace because those conflicts and hard discussions sometimes need to be had. And so Jesus calls the peacemakers as being blessed and being called children of God. And then the last part, verse starting at verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A couple of things about this passage. It highlights one of, another one of the differences between Matthew 5, the Beatitudes and Luke's version in Luke 6. Uh, Luke throughout uses the second person, blessed are you who hunger now, for example. Um, Jesus, uh, Matthew in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes has Jesus, for the most part, using the third person. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, here he begins this last Beatitude with the third person. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, not persecuted for whatever the reason. Sometimes it's your own fault or the sinfulness of someone else. And Jesus says, if you're being persecuted because of your righteousness, because of me, in other words, Jesus could have said, then you are blessed. But then as he says a little bit more about it, he uses the second person, starting in verse 11, blessed are you, not those, but blessed are you, uh, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, again, because of me. Those things are not a blessing simply because we're being treated a certain way, but they're a blessing because we're being treated a certain way, harshly perhaps, because of Christ and because of our faith. Uh, we know that that is something that God does not forget. Um, and so let's go on. Another familiar passage happens right after this one, and it's that great passage on being salt of the earth and light of the world. You are the salt of the earth, Matthew 5, verse 13. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. A lot of commentators have talked about this. What does he mean by salt? And it can be flavoring. Uh, it can be preservation. Salt is used for both of those things. Uh, but I think hearing it in light of what comes after helps a bit. And the familiar verses starting in verse 14 of Matthew 5. 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And yes, those of us who have lived a while and remember days of VBS, uh, we remember this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We remember that, and the kids still sing it even today, and it's taken right from these passages. Right from these verses, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Interesting, he says in another passage in John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. And I think that is such a significant thing that should give us pause. Jesus takes on the statement and the identity, I am the light of the world. But he also tells us, you are the light of the world. I think we need to take that very seriously and seek to be that light, to let our lights shine and to not try to hide them under a bowl or a bushel or whatever else. And don't let Satan it out as the kids sing. Uh, I'm going to let it shine. That should be our call. And the reason is in verse 16, um, let your light shine before others, Jesus says, so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God, glorify our Father in heaven. Our deeds are to be done out in public, not for our own uh, blessing and glory, as he's going to say in Matthew 6, but so that the Father can be glorified and so that others may be brought into uh, the fold. Uh, that is exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and 3 as well, uh, when he calls us to be faithful uh, followers of Jesus Christ and to let that example be seen by others in such a way in 1 Peter 3.15 that they may ask us why we have hope and live with hope. And that's when we should be prepared and ready to answer. Um, that's a great statement in 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let your light shine. Well, the Sermon on the Mount continues. That's a great, great statement. But there are so many in Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, one of the things he says, starting in verse 17, is that he has not come to abolish or um, uh, turn away the law and the prophets, but rather he has come to fulfill them. And that's exactly what he says. And I think that one of the theme verses of the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, the scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is one of those things that also must have shocked, just like the Beatitudes, must have shocked the people that were hearing this because the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the, they were the ones who were the most devout in following the law. And yet Jesus says, your righteousness is going to have to surpass that. And then he goes on and he tells us why, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but throughout his ministry, and they ultimately put him to death for it, these religious leaders, because he calls them out and he calls on everyone to have their righteousness coming from the heart and coming from faithful and pure motives uh, to have the values that Jesus as the Son of God himself has. Uh, so again, Matthew 5, verse 20, I think that's a theme passage. And in verses 21 and following, he gives us examples of what he means by that. And he talks about several things, as you know, such as the sanctity of marriage and compassion for others. Uh, he talks about 
uh, murder. And he says, don't, don't just think that the murderer is the one who is unfaithful, but if you are uh, angry uh, with your brother or your sister in such a way that you treat them uh, wrong and unjustly and unfairly and cruelly, then he says, um, then, then you've committed murder in your heart. Uh, and uh, familiar passages that follow that where he says, look, if, you're, if you've got a conflict with your brother or sister, don't, don't come and offer your gift at the altar. Get that, get that straightened out and then come and do that and offer up your direct worship. He speaks about adultery starting in verse uh, 27 and the familiar passage that says, you know, it's not just the act itself, but it is looking on a woman or a man lustfully that's not your husband or your wife. And he says, you've committed adultery already in your heart when that happens. Uh, and it's such a serious thing that Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Again, those verses should not be taken literally. And my friends who say the Bible should be interpreted literally in every place, well, they might have a little hard time with that one. But Jesus is trying to communicate how serious uh, the thoughts that we have in our mind, and that's one of the horrible sins about um, uh, uh, pornography, that it causes it, it, it just uh, is toxic to our minds and to our heart, and it causes us uh, to be guilty of the sin of adultery. He speaks of the sanctity of marriage in verses 31 and 32. And again, uh, speaking about uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage, he calls on us to hold marriage as sacred and to be faithful in those marriages and to seek to not just be married, but to have the, the marriage that God had in mind when he first had the vision for marriage. Uh, he'll speak about marriage uh, again in Matthew chapter 19, taking us back to that account in Genesis, saying that a man, a male, leaves his father and his mother and is faithful and uh, loyal to his wife, female and that uh, they are one flesh and that that is God's design. He speaks about taking oaths starting in verse 33 and he says, look, stand by your word. You don't have to, you don't have to take an oath. Uh, just be a person that when you say yes, you mean it. And when you say no, you mean it and you hold uh, to that. Uh, the familiar passages at the rest of, the, of chapter five talking about uh, uh, returning uh, evil for evil and good for good. And he says that's, that's not what I tell you. I tell you that uh, you should return good for evil. And when you're treated poorly, uh, respond with love. When they, uh, those um, Roman officers ask, uh, command you basically as a Jew uh, because they were the occupying force. They had the power. They could command them to carry their pack for them for a mile from their home. The Jews had a mile uh, roped off in, many, in every direction, not really roped off, but a marker that said this is a mile and and um, and and they couldn't force them any more beyond that Jesus says if they force you to go one mile go to someone slaps you on one side let turn the other side turn the other cheek uh, this is uh, contrary to our human nature it's contrary to what we even in this country believe that that's not the way you should do it but for a Christian uh, for the Christian Jesus says, look, you return good for evil and you overcome evil with good in the words of Paul in Romans 12. 
And so he says, starting in verse 43, you've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for them. Don't pray that they'll get hit by a car or fall off a cliff, but pray that God would bless them. Seek their good um, because that's what God does for us, Jesus says. He doesn't withhold rain or sunshine when we have sinned. Um, he and, and Romans tells us, especially that great passage in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest demonstration of love of all time. And so finally, Jesus ends this chapter, and this is just chapter 5 in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And of course, we could never do that. Uh, but what we can do is to seek that kind of life that God calls us to live. There's nothing in the Sermon on the Mount that, that would cause us to think that Jesus doesn't expect us to seek to live this way. These are godly values. He calls on us to have them. Chapter 6 deals with uh, different types of worship, our direct worship to God. And the theme of these first, the first half of, of uh Matthew 6 is seen in verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And that, and then he talks about three different examples of that. He talks about our prayer, and he talks about our giving, and he talks about fasting. And in each instance, he says, don't do this just to be seen by others to let them think how glorious you are. With prayer, he says, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders think they're gonna be heard just for their marvelous prayers. And that should never be why we pray in public. In fact, Jesus says, if that's the way it's gonna be, then just pray by yourself in your room. Close, close, go in there, close the door, and, and just talk to God, just you and God. That doesn't mean that we don't pray publicly. We see lots of examples of that. But again, throughout all three of these examples, Jesus is reminding us that it needs to be done to serve and honor God, not to be seen by others. And so it's in this context, in Matthew's version, in Matthew 6, that we read the wonderful Lord's Prayer. We're very familiar with that. Starts out, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name in the traditional translation. Uh, Luke will have this prayer in Luke 11. And he has it in a different context, and it's a little bit different there again. In Luke 11, it's Jesus was praying one day, and the disciples came up to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I'm sure that happened, and I'm sure Jesus spoke in this message in the same way. Uh, and we read those things, and it's a wonderful, wonderful prayer. Uh, acknowledging God in his greatness, honoring him, hallowing, worshiping his name, making it holy, keeping it holy, praying for God to take care of us, praying for God's will to be done, uh, praying for uh, others to come to know him, thy kingdom come, I think is what that means, uh, praying that uh, we would be able to forgive others. And that's where Jesus says, if we forgive other people their sins against us, he will forgive us ours. And so he calls on us to ask the Lord not to lead us into temptation, but to protect us from the evil one. Uh, a great, great prayer. Uh, one that I think is appropriate for us to pray today. Again, the kingdom of the church has already been established, starting in Acts chapter 2. And it could be that that was what Jesus had in mind. But when we pray that prayer today and we say, may your kingdom come, I think what we're praying is what they prayed throughout the book of Acts 
and in the New Testament times, and that is that God's kingdom would come more and more in our world and in the lives of people, specifically those that we're trying to reach with the gospel of Christ. He speaks of fasting starting in verse 16. Jesus expects, I think, his disciples to fast. We don't find it commanded anywhere, but we it seems like he's thinking that that's what we're going to do every so often. Do that in, in, uh, in line with your doctor's uh, uh, recommendations. Be careful there in a physical way. Don't physically harm your body, but keep it in subjection, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Make sure your body and your carnal nature know who's boss, that it's Christ, uh, and not the, uh, the thinking and the desires of the flesh. Um, and so he says, don't, don't make yourself miserable when you fast so that everyone will see how hard you're making your life. But rather, he says, don't let anybody even know it. Maybe unless you tell them, they won't know. And then, of course, um, he also speaks uh, of our giving uh, right off the bat, that we don't give the way others give, just to be seen by others. It doesn't mean that others don't know about our giving. Barnabas is an example of that for the early church at the end of Acts chapter 4. But Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 is what Jesus condemns, how they did it just to be seen and receive glory from others. And then starting in verse 19, this very familiar section, one of Joyce's favorite passages of Scripture that talk about how God will take care of us. And he calls on us not to save up treasures for ourselves here on earth, but to save up treasures in heaven. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't have a savings account or a retirement account or we don't keep a job because we're just going to let God take care of us day to day. I don't think it's talking about that at all. That's an abuse of scripture. Uh, just like uh, we read in our daily reading uh, with the temptations, uh, Satan used scripture against Jesus, but he wouldn't let him tried to manipulate scripture. Well, uh, let's not manipulate this passage either into saying something it's not. So what is it saying, Bill? Well, it's saying that we trust God, much like 1 Timothy 6 and other passages uh, where uh, believers, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, for example, believers are told to be willing to give, uh, to not hold on to their uh, blessings with a clenched fist, but rather with an open hand. To where we understand God has given us these things, but they're all God's, including the 10% or however much it is that we give in our contribution that we share with others. Uh, and he says, just like God takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers in the field, he will take care of us. And so don't worry, he continues on. And, and that great verse in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things that we need uh, will be given to us as well. We can't serve two masters, he says in this passage, but what we can do is seek God first and put him first in our lives, and, um, and he'll give us everything we need. Maybe not everything we want, maybe not even the things we need in the way that we would like for him to do, but he'll give us everything that we need. And then that gets us to Matthew chapter 7. And one of the most misused verses uh, of all, Matthew 7, verse 1. In fact, some have said this is the current generation, the current cultures, uh, John 3.16. It has surpassed John 3.16 as the most popular verse in our culture. And that could be true. Um, and it simply says this, do not judge or you too will be judged. Judge not that you be not judged. 
And so people take that verse out as if it's the only verse in the Bible. <laughs> and they say, see there, you shouldn't judge me. I sh you should let me live the way I want to live. You should let me marry whoever I want to marry. You should let me uh, have the values I want to have, when, no matter what they, what they are, no matter what you think. And if this verse were the only verse in the Bible, then okay. But it's not. It's not even the only verse in this chapter. In fact, Jesus goes on to talk about judging others in this very chapter and living a life that is faithful to his commands and to his word and to his will. What does it mean then? Well, it means to act with humility. Paul, even in Galatians chapter 6, says, When someone is overtaken in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of humility. Remembering that we ourselves have our own sins. We ourselves have our own uh, temptations. And that's why he says this weird, little funny illustration. He says, hey, you're trying to take out a little speck of dust in someone's eye when you've got a big two by four in yours. Uh, and that's exactly what it is when we seek to judge and condemn others in a way that is not faithful to God's word and God's will. And so he calls on us to be careful about that. And then in verse 7, he says, ask, and it'll be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. What a great promise that is. It's a great promise because it tells us that uh, God is going to respond to our prayers. The amazing thing about prayer is that God actually hears them. And not only that, but as Ephesians 3 says, he is able to do more than we could ever ask or even imagine. Ask, and it will be given. Knock. Uh, seek and you will find knock and it will be open. It won't always be yes, the answer to our prayers. Jesus' prayer in the garden was not answered with a yes. Paul's prayer to remove the thorn in the flesh was answered with a no. It's not because their faith was small, but it was because God had something better in mind, not just for them individually, but for his purpose, his kingdom, his will. And we see that in the greatest example of all when Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Just as he had taught us to pray, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the garden, Jesus prayed that exact thing. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Uh, what an amazing thing our Savior went through uh, for us. Verse 13 in, in chapter 7 starts with this this word that is a good commentary on Matthew 7, verse 1, about not judging, because it is exactly a passage that says, you better live faithfully. Um, enter through the narrow gate. Uh, the, the road is wide that leads to death and to frustration and to pain, but the road is narrow that leads to life. And there aren't very many that find it. It's a tragic, tragic thing that I know breaks God's heart more than it could ever break ours. And yet it's real. It's real. Jesus himself said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our diverse uh, culture doesn't want to admit that, doesn't want to acknowledge that, but that's clearly the will of God. And that's clearly the, the teaching of Christ. So we can say, judge not that you be not judged all day long, but it doesn't mean that everyone who lives any way they want, whatever will make them happy, whatever direction they are following because they're following their heart, those make for great Hallmark movies and cards, but it's not found in Scripture. We follow the will of God. That's what's found in Scripture, and that's what leads us to that joy that the 
circumstances that we're in cannot threaten or take away. Um, and that's the only way to have life, to get to the Father, is through Jesus Christ. That is the narrow way that he speaks of in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. And so he says in verse 15, watch out for false prophets. Watch out for that false teaching. Well, how do we know what's true or false, Jesus? And he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Is their fruit something that leaves good in its wake or destruction and evil? Is their fruit something that acknowledges the will of God and is faithful to what is written in Scripture? In Moses' day, they asked the same question. How do we know if a prophet is speaking the word of the Lord or not? And he says, well, if, they, if it doesn't come to pass, then it's not the word of the Lord. And then um, Moses also says in Deuteronomy 13, if what they say does come to pass, and yet they tell you to follow other gods, to get away from the word of God and the law of God, then that person is to be cursed. And so we look to see what is in their wake. What kind of fruit are they bearing? And are they being faithful to God's will? A great passage in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23 is so needed to be said and heard in our culture today that says, look, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Just live however you want to live. Teach whatever you want to teach. Follow whatever you want to follow. And you'll be fine. But that's not what Jesus says. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only who, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Why would they not be blessed if they did it in Jesus' name by his authority? Well, the reason is, is because of what verse 21 says, they were not doing the will of the Father. No matter how many good works are done, if we're not living according to the word and will of God, then we're not going to be blessed. We're not on that narrow path. This great passage in Matthew 7 ends with one final story, and it's another story that we get a great kid's song from. And uh, you know, the wise man built his house on the rock. The rains came down, floods came up, and the wise man's house stood firm. Foolish man built his house on the sand. Rains came down, floods came up, and this foolish man's house went splat. Every child's favorite part of that song, Bill's favorite part of that song. And then the application is the next verse. So build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, and I... You know, we ask ourselves, well, what's the meaning of this story that Jesus tells us? Well, the answer is seen in this passage in Matthew 7, verse 24. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Well, which are you today? Which are you? As you hear these words of Jesus, as you read these words in the Bible, God's word, do you hear them and then just go about however you want to live? Or do you hear them and put them into practice? If you don't do what Jesus says, then you're a hearer only. And you're like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and there's no foundation there. And your life will one day go splat. But if you hear the words of Christ, the word of God, the Bible, 
and you seek to put those words and that teaching into practice. Then you're like that wise man who built his house on the rock. You'll have a strong, firm foundation. We sing the old hymn, On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I hope and pray that that will be the way you live your life today and every day. May God bless you, and I'll see you on Tuesday.